This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Octavio Garcia. I've known him for a long time and he's the founder of Gorilla Watches. Octavio, welcome. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for the invitation. Pleasure to be with you. I really don't remember the first time we met, but I do know that it was while you were at a former job, and that was the one that you held previously, I believe, to being an entrepreneur, and that was as uh, the essentially the designer at Audemars Piguet. How many years did you hold that position? You were there for quite a while. I was there about uh, 11, 11 years in total. I started in 2003. Talk a little bit about what Audemars Piguet was like at the time, because I think it's a brand that has, in the last 20 years, and that was 20 years ago, changed tremendously. And this entire conversation isn't just going to be on Audemars Piguet, but it is a brand, again, which is uh, uh, the point of a lot of discussion. And I think it'd be interesting to do some comparing and contrasting. So what, what was Audemars Piguet like circa 2003? When I began at AP, um, effectively, it was a smaller brand. We were about 200 people uh, on site. Uh, the teams were very close and uh, worked in collaboration in, a, in an almost organic way. And I think in that sense, I imagine that has still remained uh, the same today because I think it's an important part of product development and design is to have these teams collaborating closely. So um, I think that's the one thing that stands out for me with AP is that it was a brand that was also... Uh, in search of developing itself from a product standpoint beyond just the Royal Oak. And so I came at a time when the the company was open to creativity and to guidance from a creative standpoint. So uh, thank you for sharing that. I want to talk a little bit more about that era, but you said something so interesting to me, and that was that 20 years ago, they were very dedicated to moving beyond the Royal Oak. It sounds to me like for probably several decades now, at least, Audemars Piguet, in one way or another, has been trying to assert itself beyond this. It's it's kind of a funny phenomenon. Is it is it a predictable thing? Like, did it make sense to you? Were you not just like, let's just go with the Royal Oak? Talk a little bit about this interesting phenomenon where there's this massively successful, you know, uh, a product family, but it does not define the entire brand, at least in theory. Well, I mean, from the inside, when you when you consider the Royal Oak, uh, it's its strength from a design point of view, its popularity, its history. You also realize that when you're walking through the museum, there's so much other interesting material that you can draw inspiration from. One of the one of my favorite examples is the Millinery Collection, where. Um, we uh, developed that as a new branch. And it, in, in general, I think what made and what makes Audemars Piguet unique is the variety of shapes that are within the, the, the collection at the time. There was Edouard Piguet, Jules Audemars, Millinery, and the, the Offshore and Royal Oak. So this variety was, was interesting and open to various audiences because not everyone is, all, is looking for a, for a sports watch only. Yeah, no, I just think it's such been such an interesting evolution. You talk about the millinery, which was, again, a, a fascinating collection. 
you know, was very different, trying to be more dressy. And and I'm also thinking that I think 2003 was around 10 years after the original Royal Oak Offshore came out. And this was also a time when, when watches like the Offshore were getting very popular. This was the year before the Hublot Big Bang came out. This was when Panerai was starting to get kind of popular a little bit. What was some of the, the talk a little bit about the market, because I think it's, it's, it's quite different, I think, 20 years ago in terms of what people were making and buying. There are similarities, but talk about sort of what was hot um, at Audemars Piguet. Well, I think in general, um, markets have a tendency to uh, evolve in waves. Things come and go. And uh, I think that what, what's, what's one of the strengths of AP was really sticking not, not necessarily to the trends, but focusing on what really embodies the, the company. And so developing those branches was also an important part of its development in general. So the offshore and the Royal Oak, particularly the offshore, my uh, 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 contribution to the brand was was the main focal point. And, and we did uh, do some pretty um, uh, cavalier uh, exploration with the offshore. And it, um, it connected with, with, uh, with, the, um, with the clientele at that time. And it also surprised and challenged the uh, the clients from Audemars by introducing new materials, exploring new directions in design, collaborations with uh, different um, testimonials and friends of the brand. All of these things, I think, helped build the uh, the experience that AP had with uh, ex- uh, manufacturing new materials, and um, what was an important, I would say, um, passage into uh, into the future, into where AP is today. There was a lot of testing at the time. And again, I want to add a little bit more context because not everyone is familiar with this era like you and I are. I mean, you you more than me, but I mean, I, I, I regularly speak to novice watch collectors that have no real ability to connect with this era. And that's the thing that's interesting is even 20 years ago, mine will be for some people 200 years ago because mm. there isn't discussions about these watches. I mean, Audemars Piguet today, does not mention the offshore, like barely. They have like the model they make, which is sort of the 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 remake of the originals. But this era of collaborations, of experimentation, as you said, every new limited edition offshore did something new. It was like, hey, let's try new chronograph pushers. Let's try new bezel material. Let's try new hands. And they, I think they did well because they they truly experimented. It must have been exciting. And I'm wondering how much of those decisions got to be yours or did someone else say, hey, Octavio, we have this idea, we have this material, uh, make it work. Well, I mean, my my career at AP evolved uh, throughout the, the 11 years that I was there. Yeah. So I, I began as purely uh, a designer and then eventually went on to to managing a design team internally. So I have to give credit where credit is due. I was not the only designer working on on these pieces, and it's thanks to a, a team of of creative people that we were able to generate such interesting uh, watches. Some of them experiments, but met, but always uh, keeping in mind that those exper- experiments would potentially trickle down into the core collection products of the future. So similar to what you would have in Formula One. Where, where you experiment with really the, the cutting edge. Um, oftentimes, these technologies, some of these technologies uh, trickle down into, into um, more accessible and uh, understandable collections for, for a wider audience. At the time, 
Were there others doing that? I mean, it was a very open-minded time in the watch industry. I don't want anyone to think that because it was in the past, it was somehow more conservative. Anything, it's more conservative today. But talk a little bit about, you know, if any, if you remember any other brands doing that, because it felt like Audemars Piguet for a brand, you know, of, of its seriousness, uh, was was very open-minded and playful. And I, I can't really remember too many others doing that. Do you? But I think even before I began at AP, Audemars was already a, a playful brand. Uh, if I think back at some of the Edouard Piguet pieces that they were that they were developing with with uh, semi-precious stone. Uh, base plates, or or um, some of the grand complications that they that they were uh, developing uh, under the Royal Oak uh, uh, collection, they were already pretty groundbreaking for the time. But off the top of my head, I can't think of any other brand in the in high watchmaking that was doing this sort of experimentation. No, and so I think it's very true that. Audemars Piguet for a long time had a uh, a confidence of we did that you know we we did it early not necessarily first but we did it earlier and I think that confidence has has, uh, has translated itself to the consumer. What would you say is the difference between how consumers look at the brand Audemars Piguet today versus uh, during the time you were there? Because I think there's been a a, a major shift. In the types of people, uh, uh, it's it's almost become a major part of pop culture. Whereas it was still, you know, a a, a bit of a niche thing uh, much of the time when when yes. you were working there. Well, I think along with with the brand, uh, the consumer, the clientele has evolved and and has also matured, and so expectations are different now. And I think that AP understands that they have their ear to the ground, and they're they're listening, and they're adapting the brand, and perhaps consolidating all the experimentation that was done before into uh, more mature, elegant products. Do people still ask your opinion about the new things or are you just, you know, you've been away for a while and you're just sort of clean your hand with it? Because I can imagine you, there's still this group of people and every new watch are like, Octavia, what do you think about this? Occasionally it does happen. It's always in, 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 good, in good spirits. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we speak about all, all sorts of brands and uh, we have our opinions about all sorts of brands. It's exciting to see now that uh, there's an upcoming generation of new brands as well that I think is stimulating also the bigger brands. Yeah. And so this sort of synergy is is interesting and it, it causes some debate sometimes. Now, you went straight, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, from your time at Audemars Piguet to becoming an entrepreneur. And I think it's important to say that, of course, you were living at the time, or still now, in Switzerland, in watchmaking country. But you are—you are not yourself Swiss. Um, you, you know, had your art education here in California. Talk about the fact that you are amongst the people that that moved to Swiss watchmaking country. You're not the only one, but would you agree it's 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 a bit rare? It tends to not be a place that is um, highly exciting for foreigners to live. Uh, that that's true. That's true. It takes some some uh, adaptability to 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 live in Switzerland. But uh, my family is here as well. My my wife is Swiss, so that helped. Uh, sure. And effectively, I did my my um, my design education in an American school, art center, which uh, which led me in in lots of ways. It was sort of the gateway into the watch industry because I had a lot of friends around me that were were hired by watch brands at the time. We're talking about 
1994, 95, 96. So um, there too, a different time. Now, what was it like for you to make the decision to go off on your own? Because a lot of people, I think, would have guessed that you would have moved either laterally or to somewhat more of a promotion at another brand. What was the decision like? I think it's because a lot of people have done this before you and many since you, where you take this you know, good time at a big brand, one that many people want to be part of, but then you sort of go off on your own. And we see this behavior a lot of times. And you were, uh, again, I think part of an early era of, of independent brands that obviously, according to many people, are the most exciting part of the watch industry. I agree. But talk a little bit about psychologically, maybe even practically, why that was a better idea than trying to move to a, another brand. More so than being a better idea, I think I just had to have that experience. I, for many years, I, I was contemplating, meditating on the idea of going solo and starting my own brand, experimenting what that would be like. Obviously, the fact that I was in a big brand like AP, uh, who gave me uh, access not only to the uh, product development side of a brand, understanding really the nuts and bolts of what it is to develop a product from A to Z, launching it the marketing side, but also the, um, the distribution side, understanding that, seeing how complex that can be, gave me the confidence to, to take that step into entrepreneurship. So it was, it was with that confidence that I, that I said that this, is, this could be the right timing. There, there was also this idea that in 2016, there was a gap. We, we, we saw a gap that, that we felt that we could fill in a way or address with our experience. I say we because I, one of my colleagues uh, also joined me in this, um, in this adventure I see. of independence. So it's, it's, it's a little bit better when you're not alone, but it's still also a scary thing because when you see behind the scenes, you do understand the nuts and bolts. That's obviously an uh, incalculably you know, <laughs> valuable education before starting your own brand. But don't you ever get a sense of the risk and you know how how much is at stake huge investments and how long it can take i mean you know using using the example at Audemars Piguet the, the royal oak it was not an instant success uh, by any means it achieved success after uh, a lot of dedication by the brand and refinement and, and lots of things like that but it was not an instant success what what was your 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 perception of risk at the time it was probably um underestimating I, I think I underestimated the risk in a lot of ways, which Interesting. is not necessarily a bad thing because uh, um, although we're very comfortable with the product development side, everything else around building a brand is what was a very steep learning curve, right? So, and uh, although we, we, I had the advantage of, of having um, a network of people, trusted people that I could count on for advice and also to help us kick off the, the, this idea. I think in a lot of ways, it was good that I didn't know the extent of, uh, of the complexity in a way of, of doing something on my own. This is a very common situation to be in that you, you go into something that's more complicated than you probably would have wanted to do. So like it's, it's, it's the ignorance in a sense that, that gets you started 
but it's the will to to finish it through which carries you through. So if you would have known how hard it was, maybe you wouldn't have started. But once you're like committed to it, you're like, oh, oh my gosh, I I have to do so much more than I thought to to finish. But I I want to finish it. That will to complete, right? Well, I mean, we're all in with the brand, and uh, yes, part of it is is this uh, this idea of not we we can't know everything but also how fast moving it is, how, how it's changing. I mean, before our very eyes, technology wise, um, the markets are evolving. So all of these things have, have an impact on, on, um, on your strategy. And where once you could say, yes, let's do a five-year plan and project ourselves into the future uh, today. I mean, we're only seven years old. We started in 2016, so we still have a ways to go. Odma Piguet has a bit more of a head start than we do. They're from 1875. So the the way the rapid changing environment that we live in today is also uh, um, one of the elements that make it more complex, I would say. Now, when you went to start your own brand, uh, there's a ton of directions you could have gone in. And the brand's name is Gorilla. And you've been very open about the fact that it it celebrates your love of cars, not just any cars, but sort of specific uh, type of you know American muscle car, um, and and it's it's true. You have to sort of choose a theme. You can't just sort of do everything. What was the internal process like to decide what to do? Because I have a feeling that so many people in your position that could start any number of good brands have a sense of paralysis because they just don't know what to do. How did you decide what to commit uh, commit on? Well, I think when you when you're starting something new, like uh, uh, you have to you have to love the theme that you're choosing, right? You have to be comfortable uh, also with the vocabulary of that theme. And so picking something that, that you're familiar with, that, 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 that has an emotional connection to you is obviously easier in the long run because, um, because you, you can relate to it. And because, uh, it, my, my theory was that cars and watches have very many parallels. They're both emotional as, as far as I'm concerned two of the last uh, emotional uh, products, uh, mass market products. So the, these, these two um, parallels, I think, are, are, were vital for me when, when kicking off the brand because we, we knew that we could play within these two worlds visually but also technically to, to get our message across. So I would say that the number one thing when you're starting off is uh, choose um, – a story, a storyline, a narrative that that you love, and I love cars. Thank you. That's that's a great explanation for um, what it all comes from, and and I'm I'm really appreciative that I asked because that that helps sort of segue into the element of you know it's good, but there's opinions everywhere. Now, the moment you started coming out with your watches from sort of the early ones with I think the the, the Japanese movements to um, very sophisticated stuff, which has been um, a delight to wear. I always knew it was sort of good. But in this industry we have, there's almost like the sin of being novel, right? Like, like how dare you show us something new? How dare you be uh, a new shape or a new concept? And there's definitely a segment of the, uh, you know, of the the industry that has this. In your opinion, why is there so much hesitancy towards new? Why do things have to burn in after a while? What is it about the, the watch industry where people are just oddly, like systematically closed-minded to, to new shapes? I think people, um, 
first of all, there's a, there's this huge emotional attachment that we have to the brands that we love. And that's no different for watches. So when you're introducing something new, even with an established brand, it sometimes takes time to adapt to it and understand it. Um, so being comfortable, uh, challenging your audience is, is important. Having thick skin is important. Having a vision is important. And uh, if you're confident about the about the um, the choices that you've made, whether it's um, a sort of unexpected name like Gorilla, or uh, coming out with these material combinations that perhaps we've seen before, but not a, in, in, at an accessible price point, and being challenged on those things by the very the very people that you know that follow you, that that like your brand, that that are interested in in uh, in discovering. Is I think it's actually a positive. It's it's positive to challenge your audience. Interesting that you talk about this notion of challenge, and I'm thinking about this. You're right. When people normally don't like to be challenged, they end up appreciating it. But it's the rare soul that actually likes to be challenged. I do like to be challenged. Most people feel defensive, and that's actually the emotion we see. It's sort of a threat. You know, how dare you ask me to uh, make a decision on whether or not something new should be incorporated into my list of favorites. I'm very threatened by this um, because you are challenging them to, to make a decision. Do they like it? Do they not like it? Does it work? Does it make sense for them? It's it's something new to, to learn. And maybe it's just as simple as the fact that a lot of people don't like to new learn things and, and, and some people some people do. Going with the sort of, you know, the the shape of the watch, do you have a name for it? Because a lot of brands sort of come up with fancy names for their watches or terms, and I always find that helps. And you've obviously stuck with the sort of shape, not through all your watches, but, you know, um, a sort of, um, not, I wouldn't call it boxy, but a, a cool mm-hmm. shape. What do you call the shape? I think that, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't necessarily have a name for it. It, it is a, a tono, a tono shape. A, uh, a barrel, a barrel-like shape, with these uh, two uh, softer outer edges that um, that sort of um, converge into into the rubber strap, which is integrated. So it, it makes a sort of tonal shape. But just just uh, building on 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 your on your remark regarding regarding challenging challenging yeah. the audience, I think that uh, another important uh, element in that cha- challenging the audience is is um, is this sort of idea of, of finding balance between what a watch is supposed to deliver on a sort of rational, in a rational sense, that's to tell time, right? And, uh, and finding balance between that and, and uh, a new aesthetic vision. And so, because as, as a watch enthusiast, we've, we've learned our minute, uh, the, the, the display of a watch. So we have these learnings that, and if, if you can, if you can lay that out in a clear way, in a concise way, in a way that still makes sense to the eye and, and at the same time, surprise people with new shapes, then I think that's the kind of combination that can allow you to have arguments to, to convince, uh, audiences that, that your watch, uh, has, longevity if you will or or has a has a design that that can that can with time be understood i like the word merit that it has merit yes that's it now i think a perfect example of what you're talking about where you challenge some of the perceptions for example the 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 notion that 
a watch dial has two hands in the center, one point of the hours, one point of the minutes, and you have the, the wandering hours, uh, as Audemars Piguet called it, the star wheel. Or work, of course, adapted it to the sort of satellite system. And you used it in, in uh, at least two watches because you loved it. Would you agree that this um, sort of wandering an hour system until the time is a perfect example of, of challenging the convention but presenting something that is arguably equally um, you know, legitimate to tell the time? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a perfect example. Although even with in, in its simplest form, the hour minute, you could still – you can still – um, make mistakes, right? And, yeah. But effectively, the, the the wandering hour is a perfect example of of um, challenging the audience, um, offering something unique, uh, offering something with depth, with with mechanical um, uh, dimension that also tells time. And that's a that that's a that's a product that the first time I saw it uh, at AP in the form of the star wheel really caught my eye because on the one hand it Fundamentally, it's it's not that complex of a of a movement of a of a of a construction, but it visually it's striking and it does look complex. So yes, that's a, that's a great example of of challenging the the audience, challenging the eye. Now, I think it was 2019 where you first came out with the uh, I think it was the drift. It was called, and this was I think very special because this was the first time. To my knowledge, in a modern sense, has this complication been offered in a relatively affordable package? You know, or work watches are by no means affordable. This was prior to when Audemars Piguet had had you know re-released its wandering hours. I think Parmigiani had something, but they, they were all very, very high end. What was it like for you emotionally to introduce in, in a very excellent quality? Uh, this this type of watch for a whole category of consumer that simply couldn't afford it before. It, it was a milestone for me with with Gorilla. It was uh, something that I had in mind for for many years, and being able to develop it with Vaucher Manufacture in uh, Fleurier was was also important for me because I knew that we could deliver not only something that was visually striking, but that was stable, that could be uh, easily um, serviced. And uh, so that combination, and and I mean that that's that's the job of the, of the designer is to be able to offer something that addresses um, a, a need, but that also offers something of of quality and and uh, and relevance to to the market. So I think that for me, in any case, it was really a milestone for for the company. Now you proudly put Vaucher Manufacturer on the dial, and I remember that story. I think that was a great, not only um, you know, collaboration, but a transparent discussion about how mutually specialized companies can help one another. Did the community understand? You know, I figured it out. I understood that you had a love for this this star wheel. You even told me uh, years before. I remember. Um, did the community say, "Hey, Octavia, we get it. We understand what you're doing. That's awesome." Um, or did you have to, you know, explain it a lot of times? No, I, I don't think I didn't get a lot of feedback from the community. There are some some uh, enthusiasts that really saw that as a as a um, um, a sign of of quality. And that yeah. was part of the, obviously that was part of the idea, but I think more, more importantly for us was, um, that Voshe understood it, that Voshe accepted and uh, understood 
the fact that, um, and they were actually very surprised that we were interested in, in putting their name on, on the dial. Really? So, yes. Yeah, it was, it was unexpected. It was also unexpected with the work that we did with uh, Dubois des Pras. And the yeah, you got their name on there as well. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they, they were happy to do, to do it. And we were, I, I believe we were the first to ask them to actually uh, allow us to put their name on the dial as a, as a sort of a stamp of quality for, for the product. Now, and, and I guess you, you answered my question, which was why you did it. And that is to uh, communicate to people that th- th- there's a lot of good, good parts in here. Um, it makes sense to me. Why do you think others in the watch industry are so afraid to say they're working with these people? You know, there's a secrecy that goes on a lot. When, whereas when you end up knowing who helped make stuff, sometimes it actually makes the products even more desirable. What, help, help me understand the secrecy that we sometimes see when it comes to who's helping who make what. That's difficult. That's difficult to respond to. I think that <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a loaded question, Ariel. Um, no, um, I understand the, the the need for brands to to build upon their upon their um, their story, their brand story. Many of these brands have heritage. Many of these brands have in-house manufacturing facilities that do some or all of the components. So it's very difficult to wrap your and and I think that also from from a supplier point of view, many of the suppliers don't necessarily want to to be um, known as uh, or, or be known. They, they prefer the, the being behind the scenes. So I, I think it's a sort of um, understanding between both parties that that's how brands build themselves. For us, it was it was absolutely natural to be able to share, even with you know uh, Ariel, even with the, the Miota movements that we're also very proud of, that are also very stable, strong movements. We have absolutely no problem being transparent about that, and I think that's one of the things that is changing. Uh, particularly with um, with uh, the the new upcoming brands, is that that is no longer an issue. We're open about it, and we speak openly about it. You're right. I mean, for many years there was a we'll just call it a prejudice against certain countries of origin or certain types of movements. I mean, think about the prejudice against quartz for a long time. Just because some watches out there were quartz and cheap does not mean that every you know watch with a quartz movement in there is cheap. But there are these, again, strange uh, consumer prejudices which can occur. And as a product maker, you naturally want to avoid them. And it's a little bit more difficult at times to face those head on and attack them. And sometimes it's a little bit more simple to just avoid them. Um, but you have used a bunch of different movements and things like that. But I, I also want to talk about some of the origins of the brand. And if you ever have any intentions to return to some of the price points, because you began at a very aggressive price point and then your watch has matured in terms of getting, you know, higher quality movements and you lose, you know, a lot of great components and the price went up. Do you ever think about returning with a new entry-level model that would be a nice entry to the brand that would sort of continue on there? Or do you feel that you're happy at the price points you're at right now? Because, I mean, for me, and I'll just explain, I always think that with a great brand, you should always make it possible for the largest number of people to own it. You have a cool product. A lot of people can like it. And at the same time, enthusiasts like me want to see the enthusiast uh, great thing. So, of course, there's a bunch of different directions you can go in. I'm just curious your thoughts. It's a great question, Ariel. Uh, we 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 debate this internally often, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that the, when we began Gorilla, one of the things that we really wanted to do was 
become a sort of gateway into watchmaking, become a gateway into um, into the industry, if you will. I know that's a kind of a big statement, but uh, what I what I mean by that is we wanted to reach a wider audience, an audience that wasn't necessarily interested in watches in the first place. And the automotive angle actually gave us that opportunity because um, we we connected with influencers who were very much more uh, automotive focused. And we began to discover an audience of mechanical lovers, if you will, or people that that love mechanics, that love aesthetics, but they were not, not necessarily interested in watches. And so offering a, a product that has this sort of automotive formal language to this new audience for us was um, was a must. And bringing in new people to become interested in in watchmaking as a whole has always been part of our, our, our mantra, if you want. And so we will remain accessible and uh, our spectrum of prices will continue to expand. And, but, and we are always looking uh, at new areas to address in terms of uh, price positioning, but our core collection entry-level products will, will remain uh, accessible. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. Now, when it comes to how to sell watches, that's obviously been uh, one of the, the the biggest things which has been upended over the last 20 years and, you know, the jury's still out, do it yourself uh, or should somebody, you know, you know do it for you. Um, and you've, you've, you've sort of gone all over the place and, you know, I, I believe a lot of your business is, is, is direct. Talk about what you've learned since founding Gorilla when it comes to the modern way of selling a watch or getting the watch to market. Well, from the very beginning, we wanted to, we didn't want to be a pure player. We didn't want to only go online. We still believe that the, that um, retail, uh, brick and mortar retail, multi-brand retailers have a, a role to play in promoting watches. So from the very beginning, that was, it was important for us to keep that avenue open. Uh, this idea that the retailer is just a middleman that we can eliminate and, and go direct to client is, I understand it. There's a sort of rebellious factor to that. But I think that uh, if you find the right retailer that's willing to, to fight with you and, and, and bring and defend your product and promote it correctly, it, it's, an, it's an important avenue, for, for particularly for watches that need to be seen, that need to be touched, that need to be put on, on wrists. So from the very beginning, we, we felt that building um, meaningful relationships with retailers is important. And you have to be selective because they're also still on a learning curve. And for many retailers, um, online sales and, and B2C, as, as they call it, is, uh, is a threat. But I think uh, ultimately, 
uh, is something that can work also for the retailer. So we're learning that as we as we go along, and uh, we've made our mistakes uh, along the way. But overall, I think our strategy of working both with retailers and also building our online um, retail uh, boutique has been beneficial for for everyone involved. So how does that work, the blend? I mean, I think obviously people are still trying to figure it out. But for you, what does it mean to have you know, valued retailers, which I agree is a nice and a good idea, but at the same time also to to sell direct direct functionally, how do you do that? Someone goes to Google, you know, do you want them to find you or do you want them to find a retailer? I'm I'm just curious your thoughts on on practically how that blend is supposed to work. Well I mean we have a selected um a group of retailers. We're not all over the world. So I mean in in overall maybe we have uh something like 50 points of sales around the world. That's so there's still, there, there's still a lot of territory with, with about 20, 25 points of sales in Japan alone, right? So that means there's still a lot of territory out there where you don't have uh, um, access to our products directly. So it's in those territories that we, and, and I'm, I'm specifically speaking about the U.S., where we have maybe one or two retailers, points of sales. And so for the, the U.S. is our, our biggest B2C market. Uh, all, all of the other markets, we are starting to develop the, 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 um, the retail, uh, retail network. But uh, I mean, uh, we're happy to invite if, if somebody comes to, to, um, to Gorilla and asks for, for, um, to see a product, we're happy to invite them to visit one of our retailers. There's absolutely no, uh, it's not a tug of war between one or the other. We're very transparent. And sometimes um, we'll have clients that um, would like to buy online, but we, we know that they live nearby a, a point of sale and we invite them to, to visit the point of sale to speak with the, with the retailer and see uh, and, and discover the products. So it sounds to me like the preference is to have a strong retail partner where there's a region where you don't, you just say, well, we'll, we'll service interests from there directly. But what I'm hearing from you is that having a retail partner, especially in a region, helps solve a lot of headaches and can amplify performance a lot. Like it seems to be your preferred way of going about it. In many ways, we look at retailers also as a, a marketing platform. Okay. Uh, they have, they have uh, knowledgeable staff. And uh, if you take the time to train them, to explain to them your story, your product, they can be a, an incredible asset to promote the brand and getting watches on. Uh, and they have also their own network of clientele that, that, uh, that are oftentimes because we're, we're in some pretty selective uh, boutiques around the world. I take, for example, Mexico, where we're in places like Berger and in, in Mexico City, Berlong and Torres in uh, Puebla, these are the, these 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 retailers carry some pretty high end brands, and so having them to, having their clientele discover our brand uh, is also an asset for us. So we look at it in that way. A lot of your watches are bold and eye catching, you know, bright colors, and of course the cars that inspire them are the same exact way. You started this a little bit before the bright color trend. Um, do you see that as being validation of what you were doing and as you being an innovator? 
Or are you like, uh-oh, everyone's into colors now. Um, I guess I got a few head, years head start. I'm just curious what your own thoughts are on the fact that, you know, bright and bold colors, uh, you know, truly whatever people can get their hands on in terms of materials and colors, they'll try now. What, what, what are your thoughts on this, on this fascination that the, the industry has with this right now? I think that independent brands, beyond, beyond the, the, the topic of colors, independent brands stimulate the market because we're taking, we, we have space to take risks that maybe established brands don't have. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to become independent because it allows me to take these risks. As a designer, I'm able to push the envelope and, uh, and uh, I'm very proud to see now that um, this, this might be a, a kind of um, strange way of saying it, but I think that we're, we're testing the waters for, for um, and sort of giving permission if you want or, or validating the fact that these these new bold directions are actually commercially viable, right? I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. So what you're saying is that they're very risk averse. And the moment that you show that the world does not explode when it happens, they're like, <laughs> oh, okay, we'll try it. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Do they thank you or is it just sort of a very silent thank you in the form of uh, copying? No, I, I haven't got any... Uh like um, official thanks from anybody, but I think s seeing the, the industry move in new directions is, is, uh, is, is enough for me. Now, materials these days seem to be coming out of the woodwork. There's, you know, people making their own carbon blends and all these new terms that happen and every type of a composite you consider. Some of them are not at all even appropriate. Are you constantly on the hunt for new materials? Are they coming to you? I mean, your average watch gorilla case has ceramic, aluminum, uh, often titanium, um, some other materials as well, of course, rubber for the strip. I'm like, you already have a bunch of great materials in there. But again, talk a little bit about how that fits into your day in terms of just always looking for something new or they're just crazy suppliers coming to you and be like, Mr. Garcia, we have to show you this new material. You're going to love it. Well, we do have suppliers that are very actively um, proposing new, new materials. It, it does, it does happen to us on, on a rel relatively regular basis. Okay. But uh, we, we have a program. We have a, we, we have a, a program set, set up. We, we know the direction the brand is taking for the next four or five years in terms of materials and uh, and, and and sizes and um, and so we, we 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 try to stick to the plan and we've we've done the material exploration that we we wanted to do and now we're moving in a different direction. What's the direction you're moving in? I guess that's the question I have to ask. I would say that in general we're we're exploring more. I would say no, noble materials. That's what I can say for now. Noble materials as opposed yes. to the, the ignoble ones? No, um, as, <laughs> as, as opposed to perhaps the more, more exotic materials, I would say. Um, studying just straight um, materials that are perhaps more known by, by the general public, like steel and maybe gold and, and maybe um, uh, titanium we've been working a lot with. These are uh, more noble in, this, in that sense. So you feel that with the materials that you've chosen, there's enough palette of color options and variety so that you'll be satisfied because it seems to me that you and your team have an awful lot of fun with colors i have a, a fun time just looking at the the color combinations you come up with it's just you know it, it, it's it's really great and 
I, it's like, I almost don't want you to be limited. I'm like, you know, like Octavio here, more options, more options, come up with more fun stuff. You know, like that's sort of what I think at least some people want to see from you. Yeah. And, and definitely we're going to continue doing that. I mean, we're not, we're not going to give up uh, the idea of these colorful ceramics and uh, I, I love forged carbon. I think it's a, it's a cool material that has some yeah. very incredible mechanical properties that, that we want to continue to explore. But we also want to open the market more and, and, and maybe um, communicate with people that are not as adventurous with, with, with these sorts of materials and that are looking for something a little bit more um, toned down. We, we also get feedback from retailers that see um, potential in something with a smaller form factor, these sorts of things. So we're, um, we're ex- that's the reason why I'm saying that we're looking for something a bit more noble. It's interesting because I, I, I just had a conversation with someone else in a previous podcast about how the internet telling you what products to make versus uh, retailers telling you what products to make is totally different. Like the internet tells you like, make crazy things that stand out. And retailers are like, whoa, 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 make things that people are more likely to buy. And mm-hmm. that's totally different. And I imagine that there's a there's a, 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 a pull and tug in multiple directions. How do you reconcile all that? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're doing the crazy stuff already. And there, there's I, I don't need much convincing to continue pushing in that direction. <laughs> so sometimes it's good to, to hear the, the sort of voice of reason, if you will, to go in the opposite direction. But the crazy stuff, I mean, we're comfortable in that, in that area. So uh, getting feedback from, uh, from, from the ground, from, from our, our retailers is also just as important. It always has been. Even when I was working uh, at, at established brands, it's always been an important part of uh, the conversation. One of the things I'm noticing that I think Gorilla very much epitomizes that's quite different than the past is where the innovation from new product to new product comes from. In the past, I think there would have been a lot less emphasis on the case design, definitely not the strap. Um, It usually would have been the movement, maybe the complications, maybe the display. And a lot of that seems to have taken a backseat in the last several years to putting that effort into the case, into the strap, into the hands, dial, crown, pushers, buckle. And I, I think it's I think it's interesting to see that. Would you would you agree with that? That while complications are awesome, uh, the public seems to be more interested in the outside, or is it still really a blend and the market is just so big and there's and, and it's just, you know, it, there's something for everyone? Yeah, I, I do agree with you. I, I think that for 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 many years there there's been a focus on on the mechanical side of, of watchmaking. But um, I think the brand the, the brands have been stimulated by by this openness, this new openness now to new to new audiences, thanks to thanks to your work, thanks to the work of journalists, but also thanks to to um, these new social media platforms that have um, have uh, bought with them new younger audiences that maybe have other expectations. And so that that has definitely stimulated brands to begin to explore also um, cases and materials and shapes and and uh, easy, quick changing, rapid changing systems for straps to to give um, to give the client more reason to come back to the brand. 
because you're not only offering a, a, a caliber, but you're also offering uh, new straps and and interact with the product more in a in a longer lasting way and uh, live with it in a in a in a more dynamic way, like people are living with their watches t- today. You know, speaking of you know social media and things like that, one of the areas I'm happy is that celebrities made it okay to wear watches with a lot of personality. It used to be that the personality was, oh, diamonds. But then I think, you know, maybe with Richard Mille and and some other brands, it, it became common for people who had a lot of money to wear watches that weren't about saying I have money, um, were just saying maybe I'm playful or I have this interest in pop culture or I have these other interests. And that permeated into the regular consumers such that people, I think today, compared to maybe 10 or 15 years ago, are so much more comfortable wearing a watch that makes a statement about themselves. I think so many people bought black dialed Submariners for so long because it was safe and neutral and you never needed to worry about what someone was thinking about it. And now I'm, you know, I'm looking at one of your, uh, your newer watches that has blue and red, like the blue demon. And, you know, it's it's got so much stuff. And it is like the opposite of a black dialed, you know, dive watch. It calls so much attention to itself and it works because it's been normalized that that's okay to do. And you and I have known about that for, I guess, as long as we've been into watches. I think it's so great that social media has, has communicated uh, uh, that to others. But at the end of the day, you still need your product, no matter how showy it is, to be well-made, to be a good watch. And I guess that's sort of my last area of questions. How have you since started uh, being, you know, be, being your own, uh, you know, your own watchmaker, your own designer, mm-hmm. um, how have you learned how to be a better watch designer versus just a brand person? I think that um, the, the, the ambassador can be a double-edged sword. And I, effectively uh, having... Um, Celebrities that that are not afraid to to make a statement uh, at a red carpet is is important. But um, in my experience, uh, clients are are pretty adventurous, and uh, I saw it uh, in my days with with AP and other brands. Um, I, I before this whole social media boom took took place, people were already looking for something new. Clients were already looking for something new. And I think that uh, they they appreciated all of these different exercises that were done in the past, uh, um, and so effectively, some some people are reassured with seeing uh, a celebrity wear uh, an outrageous piece. But I think in general, um, like clients and new audiences are really looking for something fresh and new. And I think on the contrary social media has has made it even more important and more pressing for us to innovate uh, uh, more rapidly and and again coming back to challenging the client they're looking for challenges uh, beyond what what the the celebrity is wearing uh, they're they're looking to be challenged and looking for a new niche that's that's another thing that i'm seeing ariel is that uh social media has created tribes of 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 um of enthusiasts that are looking for something specific and personal to them. So I think we're, we're I, I want to say that we're in a way beyond the, um, the celebrity and we're now more in these tribes of people that are looking for new, uh, new visions, new proposals, new materials uh, to, to be part of a, uh, of a club, 
something special. The, the watch is a tribal signifier. It identifies you as part of a group, and you're right. Um, that is definitely an emerging area because there's so much variety in watches. You have enough to distinguish these these micro communities, as you pointed out. So I'm, I'm so glad uh, you, you talked about that um, and, and, and that, of course, that you're paying attention to it. And then, again, because I'm actually so curious, um, tell me a little bit about your, you know, what you've learned about just making a better timepiece over the last several years, being your own brand man. Many things. Um, yeah, I would, sure. <laughs> I would say that, uh, first of all, the, um, all the, there, there's the distribution part of, of, of what we do that's challenging reconciling uh, the, the um, retail with B2C has been a have, has been a tremendous challenge and an incredible learning curve for us from a design standpoint I would say that uh, it's it's probably where I feel the most comfortable Ariel it's it's the, the place where I'm uh, most comfortable exploring and pushing the envelope it's um, I don't want to say it's the easiest part of what we do, but it's the it's the it's the most instinctive and and uh, most comfortable place within within the brand building process. Building also the brand from a from a marketing point of view has its challenges, and I would say there too that, that there's a there's a big learning curve because things are moving so rapidly. So, uh, uh, but from a design standpoint, I, I feel very comfortable and confident that we're going to continue challenging our clients. I guess I want to clarify, like the actual watch as a tool. Like you've not only had to design designs, but items that are made to to be durable, to be legible. You've learned about movements. Uh, you've seen things come back. I mean, everybody wants their watches to last for as long as possible. You know, you've stacked materials in a certain way, like, and you seem to have repeated certain things, which to me sounds like it works. Yeah, I love watches because they're a tool. So you know, I, I, tell me some of these things that you've learned. Yeah, effectively. So, uh, yeah, from the, I mean, the, uh, for instance, the stacking, we, we believe that each, each material has uh, specific mechanical properties, uh, and it has its place on a watch. So ceramic, obviously as a, as a bezel is, uh, is perfect because it, uh, it's shock resistant, scratch resistant, uh, maybe not always shock resistant, but definitely scratch resistant. <laughs> and, and the and the bezel is is uh, is part of the watch that 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 takes the most trauma when you're wearing it. Carbon fiber is lightweight. It's easy to shape. It it has a certain tensile and torsional strength that I find uh, interesting for for the case itself. Mm-hmm. Titanium is a is a warmer material that, that's uh, a allergenic. So it's it, and it's relatively easy to to finish so we we feel that that's a perfect material to to be in contact with with the skin so all of these ideas come from from this sort of user-centric design approach what Uh, about aluminum because it's sort of a material that you know i I don't think you got enough credit for bringing uh, you have there's not a lot of it but use it for colors and things like that um bulgari has this whole aluminium how do you like working with that metal it's a fantastic metal it's a, it's a fan. It has to be used uh, also carefully because it, it is quite delicate. Yeah. But uh, you, you remember the time when brands like uh, Omega and Rolex were using it uh, regularly on their bezels. Oh, yeah. So it has an incredible, there's incredible color palettes that we can play with. And it's a material that really opens also from an aesthetic standpoint, uh, a lot of uh, possibilities. So definitely used, used uh, uh, we also use it a lot on our dials. 
so these color matchings uh, where you where you have a beautiful color, but also you have this metallic finish is something that, that we love to use on our flanges and uh, as a pinstripe, a, a detailing on, on the watch itself, on the case itself. Are you happy with the number of watch releases you're able to come out with each year? Do you wish you could do more? Because I'm sure that as a small brand, you, you have to sort of have certain limitations. You can't do everything. You can only invest certain amounts. I just wonder if you get impatient to do more or you feel like you've hit a, you've hit a right stride because, you know, running a watch brand is just a constant state of fixing things and trying to figure out what you want to do and figuring out cadences and, and timeframes. You know, I'm just trying to figure out how these things are all resolving for you now, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, less than 10 years, but more than five years into this. Yeah. I think we're, we, we're, we have a good cadence um, because for every product that you, that you launch, there's a, there's a marketing machine behind it. So I think th- this year we have five novelties in the pipeline. And uh, that's, that's already a lot to manage from a, from a product development standpoint, delivering on quality and, uh, and marketing and promoting. So uh, beyond that, at this stage in, in, in the, the brand's life, I think would be, would be too much of a challenge for us. So we're in a comfortable space in, in terms of launches, I would say, and novelties. That's a, that's, a, that's a good amount. I mean, I'd say that, you know, most brands should strive to have one release a year, especially small ones. Having a few is, is, is great. Five is fantastic. And then I guess I have to ask about collaborations. You know, you're a good designer. You've, I think, done a couple of little collaborations here and there. I mean, obviously people have, you've made watches for specific entities, but what mm-hmm. about design collaborations? You know, obviously that was big, uh, uh, you know, in, in sort of an informal sense over the years. Now it's getting very formal. You know, obviously a bunch of people have different opinions about it, but for you personally, do you want to do more design collaborations or are you the designer and when people collaborate with you, they bring something else and you bring the, uh, the visual aesthetics? We're, we're not actively searching for collaborations, but I'm always open to, to uh, bringing in new, uh, a new perspective to the brand. So that, that, that's definitely something that I would consider if, if, uh, if ever the opportunity came uh, to Gorilla to, to collaborate with, with, uh, with another brand or another designer, I would be more than happy to, to, to take up that, that sort of challenge for sure. Is there a desire to get deeper into the automotive world or are you sort of comfortable the distance you are? Because, I mean, one theoretical approach is to integrate more in some entity related to the car world, uh, whether it's a modifier or a company or a retailer, something like that. I'm, I'm sure you flirt with these notions from time to time. Mm-hmm. We have considered it and we are, we are close to some um, builders in, in the United States, uh, custom car builders. But there's nothing really, we, we don't want to be too literal. I think ultimately we sell watches and uh, the car world is, a, is an inspiration. It's our muse. So uh, that's, that's enough for me at this stage. Uh, perhaps if, if so, again, if something comes up, we're always open to it. But it's not something that we're, we're completely focused on, on doing. What, what's important for us really is, is the connections we have with, with our clients and making sure that... Um, that they understand the story and the message. And that story is a balance between both the automotive world, but most, 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 most importantly, it's about watches. 
Now, you yourself on a, I don't even, it's probably not a daily basis, but a weekly or monthly basis, you know, have to continue to market the brand. What, what do you do and what can you say, what are you happy talking about that is part of your routine of marketing the brand? Obviously, you speak to me and I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, what are some of the things that you have to do outside of just, you know, making sure watches get made and, 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 uh, and designed uh, to help, you know, build uh, or continue to grow the brand, which is your baby? marketing is a, is a, it's a, it's a vast, uh, conversation. <laughs> part of it, part of it again is with our retailers. We make sure that our retailer, that we have contact with our retailers on a regular basis to make sure that they have everything that they need to be able to promote the, the brand on their side. Uh, because again, we, we consider them as a, as a valuable, uh, marketing platform for us. So training, uh, developing visuals for them with our photographers and also 3D visual visuals that can explain specific complications that we have uh, is uh, is sort of a daily thing. Uh, we're now developing a blog on our website in order also to share with our our clients that come and visit us some of the specificities of our of our products, particularly the the conversation on materials that I feel that we don't do enough of. And then uh, there's all of the uh, Meta and Google work that we're doing on a regular basis, speaking with our agencies to make sure that um, that we're promoting the right product at the right time in the right location. So and and then our our, our social media platforms, so Facebook and Instagram, making sure that we and we we have a very active community on our on our social media platforms so we we were constantly on these platforms to make sure that we're answering questions and uh sharing with our, our audience interesting content wonderful uh everyone i recommend you go and check out gorillawatches.ch there's a lot of gorilla watch articles on the blog to watch.com which you can go check out and this has been the uh, interview with octavio garcia octavio thank you so much thank you ariel Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.